Acts chapter 2 tonight, we are in a study through the book of Acts on Sunday nights and we've already been 10 weeks looking at the day of Pentecost, amen. We are close to getting past this. We have seen the followers of Christ obedient to wait in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. They were gathered together in one place and in one accord. And being obedient, being in one accord, they were baptized by the Holy Ghost. They were filled with the Holy Ghost. And as a result, they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. As with any move of God, there are skeptics and critics. The skeptics are asking here, what meaneth this? The critics are saying, y'all are drunk. I don't know who I was talking to, but somebody said, isn't it interesting that they accuse them of being drunk and yet they're speaking perfectly coherently? (laughs) Peter, he then stands up in the midst of them and he begins to preach. He explains that this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, that God was going to pour out His Spirit upon all flesh one day, irregardless of position. Remember in the book of Numbers, it was only upon the elders. But here, God says it's going to be upon, from Joel, it's going to be upon your old men, your young men, your, your sons, your daughters, your, your servants, your handmaidens, everybody will be able to have the Holy Spirit if they'll just put their faith and trust in Christ. And so anyway, Peter, he begins to preach, um, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's a quote from Joel. He, he gives that in his quote. And then he goes on to explain who Jesus is. If you're going to tell somebody to call upon the name of the Lord, who is it they are supposed to call upon? And he says, Jesus of Nazareth. And he begins to explain the life and ministry of Christ. He begins to uh, preach his sufferings and death. And then he preaches his resurrection and victory. Peter used the word of God to preach the resurrection of Christ. Remember, he quotes from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And he speaks of the Davidic covenant, as we call it. And the emphasis from last week is the word of God is to be our authority in all areas, in all matters. Let the Word of God be true, everyone else a liar. And so when we have confusion maybe, is that the right word? When we have something we're not really sure on, we go to the Word of God. And if the Word of God, if we have book, chapter, verse, that settles it. It's our authority. We don't waver on the Word. We don't apologize for the Word. We don't water down the Word. Somebody said, well, if so-and-so would have been here this morning, they would have got up and walked out. And I said, well, I really hope that's not the case because I really try not to be sandpaper, but I cannot shy away from the truth. If you were here for Sunday school, that might be true. But for Sunday morning, I was really sweet. And so, yeah. Amen. Uh, A church, we're talking about a church in action, and a church in action will preach, thus saith the Lord, without apology. The Bible is our foundation. It endureth forever. And so my prayer is that we would be a people of the book, that Liberty Baptist Tabernacle would be known as people who are crazy enough to follow the Word of God. You know what's wrong with that church? I'll take those criticisms, amen? Praise God. Now let's pick back up at the conclusion of Peter's sermon here by reading verses 37 through 41. All right. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart 
and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Wow. How'd you like that to be your first sermon, preacher? Well, we see the results of a Spirit-filled sermon. Now, the result of this Spirit-filled sermon is not that 3,000 were saved. So stay with me here. The the result of the Spirit-filled sermon was that the listener was pricked in their heart. We don't control the results. But when we preach the Word of God, it will prick people's hearts. This word... um, This word here for prick their heart, it means to pierce their hearts. It's the only time this Greek word is used is in this verse, and it means to pierce thoroughly. You see, this is the effect of Bible preaching. It pierces. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner, the thoughts and intents of the heart. So when we preach the Word of God by the Spirit of God, we will see people that are pierced in their heart. It might be that they receive the Word. It might be that they reject it. But we preach it nonetheless. The the Word of God preached is meant to pierce the heart of those who are listening. Here's the thing. We don't know how many were present listening to Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. We know 3,000 of them were saved and baptized. There could have been way more than 3,000 that were present listening to this message. I'd be willing to suggest that however many were present that day, that every one of them that were listening to the message were pierced in their heart by the preaching of the Word of God. But just because the Word of God pierces the heart, it does not mean it's going to lead to a desire by the hearer to be born again. Because people can reject the message. In chapter 5, we'll see later on, Peter, he'll preach to the council, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with His right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses of these things and so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey Him. Some similar language there from the message he preached in chapter 2 and in chapter 5 in verse 33 it says, And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. But listen to the results of that message. They took counsel to slay them. (laughs) wait a minute, Lord, we had 3,000 saved the last time I preached that text. (laughs) The council was pierced by the Word of God, but instead of seeing their great need for Christ, they wanted to kill the apostles instead. Stephen, he preached a great sermon we'll see in chapter 7. 
He's talking to the council there as well. And at the closing of his sermon, he made a statement which would make the cupcake preachers of our day cringe with, oh, I can't believe he said that. Listen to what he said. Acts, this is his closing remarks, amen. Not, you know, I'm so glad y'all came out today. Thanks for listening. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have now been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Well, that's a pretty, uh, that's pretty good closing there. Can you imagine the television preachers of our day closing their sermons that way? Me neither. Stephen didn't mince words. But listen to the result. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. But you know what they did? They gnashed on them with their teeth, the Bible says. Well, that wasn't all they did. It's no wonder some of the more famous folks don't preach that way because the result was they picked up stones and stoned them to death. You see, preaching the Word of God may not always lead to being loved and admired. They killed the man. And I'm just highlighting that this is why we keep giving the Word of God and not our opinions. Because it is the Word of God that pierces the heart. And I want you to see, we don't control the results. One chapter, 3,000 saved. One chapter, they want to kill them. But we can control the message. We can control what comes out of our mouth. We don't know how a heart might be pierced by the Word of God, but we trust the power of God's Word to work in their hearts nonetheless. Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goeth forth out of my mouth, it shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. Isaiah 45, 23, I have sworn by myself, the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear. The end result of gospel preaching is the hope that sinners will call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And we know one way or the other, though, God is going to get the glory because once the word goes out, the Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Every one of you in here will do that. Now, I hope you've all already done that. But if you wait until after you die, it'll be too late, but you'll still have to say it. And so when God's word goes out, it pierces the heart. It is the word of God which declares Jesus to be the Christ. And so all of humanity is going to bow and acknowledge the veracity of God's word when everything's over with. And even when we are preaching the word of God outside of the context of salvation, and we're just preaching in general or maybe to another believer, we're going to be met with a mixed response. It's not always going to be good. It's not always going to be rainbows and butterflies, Brother DeGarmo. But it is going to be, sometimes it's going to be people will be pricked in their hearts. Other times, some people are going to hate you. And and I don't understand that because we're giving truth. But don't let their response guide your message. Regardless of how they respond, you keep giving the truth of God's Word. It's the truth that they need regardless of how they receive it. You see, some are going to hear godly counsel and they're going to put it into practice. 
They're going to view the word of God as correct. They're going to, like I was saying this morning, they're going to say, yeah, that's the way to have a very good life. And they're going to look at the word of God and they're going to put it to practice and they're going to be blessed as a result of their obedience. Others can hear the same biblical counsel but decide not to follow God's word. And then you have to watch as their home falls apart because they're being disobedient. It's just amazing to me. In the same congregation, there's going to be different responses. Same message being preached. If you were here for my message, my series, Five to Thrive, you heard me preach that if you'll read your Bible daily, if you'll pray earnestly, if you'll attend church faithfully, if you'll witness boldly, and if you'll give sacrificially, your life will be blessed by God. You'll be on track with God. You'll be walking with God. But only some are going to believe that. Only some are going to put that into practice. I know that. But it doesn't change truth. Others will forsake it, and they're going to pay the price. So this point that I'm trying to make here, it may only be for me. Because when you get up every week and you pour your heart out, and you plead with people, and you, and you study, and you prepare, um, I have to be reminded, just stay with it. Because I can't control how the response is going to go. But it is difficult when you get up, and those of you who are teaching Sunday school or preach, you know what I'm talking about. Or maybe you're witnessing to a family member or something, and, and week after week you give truth and yet you see nothing. It, it can be kind of discouraging sometimes uh, to do that when you're trying to feed the sheep, but you know deep down that they're going to do what they want to do. Sharon Cooper sent me a clip, and I wouldn't mind to show it, um, about this shepherd who was pulling the sheep out of that hole or something that fell in this row. The shepherd pulls the sheep out, and the sheep starts running and falls right back in it. And I thought, yeah. Well, amen. Obviously, no matter what we are preaching from God's Word, we are desirous for the response that we find in chapter 2. Peter preaches their need for Christ. These people were so pricked in their heart that they look at Peter and they ask, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Hey, that's a good, that's a good response to the message right there. What is it we're supposed to do then? And it would be great if we always had that response. But the truth is, you're not always going to have that response. There, it would be great if there was always a willingness by the hearer to want to know what to do, how to do it, be told, and then follow through with it. That, that would be wonderful. But we don't see that all the time. So I guess my encouragement for me and for you as well, just stay with it. Just keep preaching. Just keep giving the Word of God. Keep giving truth. It will pierce the heart. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. And for decades, he was preaching while preparing the ark, and yet only his family got on board. I'm not going to suggest he was a bad preacher or wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit or didn't know how to give an invitation. How do you explain it? How do you explain Jonah, who didn't want to go preach, you know, took the hard way to get there, finally gets there and preaches, and all of Nineveh is like, yeah, we better repent. I don't understand that. We, we just can't control it is what I'm saying. And so while we can't control the results, we can control us being obedient. So here we find these on Pentecost are being cut to their heart after hearing the Word of God preached by the power of the Holy Spirit, and they ask, what shall we do? 
Peter responds in verse 38, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So they've been pierced through. There's probably sorrow from what they just heard. Peter put the blame on them, just like Stephen did in his message. And they're probably sorrowful because they know they're guilty of putting Christ on the cross, which we all know spiritually we all are guilty of that. But Peter here, he's giving them that message. And they're likely fearful of God's wrath because they have despitefully entreated the Son of, of God, the only begotten Son of God. And so they're probably fearful of God's wrath. And what they have done cannot be undone. That's a bad feeling. I sent something one time by accident on a text to the wrong person. And what was done could not be undone. That's a horrible feeling. You ever had that feeling? You're like... Luke had the phone and he was messing around in me. <laughs> Just kidding, buddy. So they're hearing this message. They're cut to the heart. And I kind of sense their heart here. What shall we do? We can't undo what's been done. What can we do? And when the Holy Ghost accompanies our preaching of the gospel... It's the Holy Ghost that convinces the listener of their sin, not us. And they're asking, what shall we do? Because the Spirit is leading them to hear this message and to be convinced of their sinfulness and to follow through with whatever they're told by these apostles. And so in John 16, 7 and 8, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And this is why we cannot overemphasize the importance of being spirit-led when we're witnessing to others when we're preaching to others, when we're teaching a class or whatever we're doing, we cannot overemphasize being filled with the Spirit and walking in the Spirit because it affects the impact of us giving the Word of God. Now, get a hold here of Peter's response because this is really good. Peter, when they ask, what shall we do? Peter does not tell them to do penance. Or to first do this work or that work in order to make things right in their heart. He doesn't tell them, you know, you really need to join our church if you want to be right with God. They ask, what shall we do? But what could they do? It's done. They couldn't give sacrifices because Christ was the sacrificial lamb. Slain from the foundation of the world. He, he's already offered His life as a ransom for many, and they couldn't do works because while Christ is on the cross, He's going to cry out, it is finished. There was nothing they could do. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter says, all you can do is repent. 
<laughs> That's good. I mean, if you get the if you get what I'm trying to say here, you got to repent. Now, for some reason, this word "repent" in our day, in our circles, has become a source of contention for some, and I've yet to figure this out. Why it has become so contentious amongst independent Baptists? I think the whole argument is personally ridiculous. Um, I'll explain why, or try my best to. The word repent literally means to think differently. That's what it literally means. We hear a lot of things added to the word repent, you know, sorrow or uh, turning, all these things. Um, But it literally means to think differently or to have a change of mind. Some will say you need to repent or turn from your sins that's when some will say, see, you've just made repentance and salvation works-based. Because now you have to turn and do something. So the idea is you're working for your salvation because you're turning. Come on now. I mean, is that really what all these Baptist preachers are saying? I don't think that's what they're trying to say. I don't think anyone in our stripe is really trying to suggest that we believe in a works-based salvation. If you think about it logically for a moment, though, if you learn to think differently about your sins, it's going to lead you to turn from your sin. There will be a change. Someone said this to me as we were, I wasn't having the debate, but they were forcing it upon me. Amen. And uh, I'm just sitting there going. They said this, well, I could agree with using the term turn so long as it's used, turn to God. Okay, but isn't that still turning? I'm just trying to figure this out. It's like, the, it's like the article I read the other day. This mechanic guy said, don't let your car warm up too long in the winter. And I thought, i got to read this because I'm sure it has something to do with emissions. Well, it did. Now, don't let your car warm up too long in the winter because you're going to release too many emissions that's going to warm the air. I'm warming my car up because it's freezing cold. And you're telling me. Anyway, the whole debate to me is pointless. But not to mention, do you really think the lost sinner out there on the street is thinking, "Uh uh-oh, there's another one of those people trying to teach me to be saved by works. They're telling me to repent. I don't think the lost people even care. They, They care, but our little semantics fights that we have as independent Baptists. The only ones trying to make this a big deal are really preachers, but anyway. I came across a book in my office. I, was, I think I was showing it Brother Long, and it was Repentance Heresy by Curtis Hudson's The Devil. Anyway, um, on top of all of this, get this now, the Bible uses the term repent in conjunction with turn within the same verse and context several times. Moses asked the Lord in Exodus 32.12, to turn from thy fierce wrath and repent of this evil against thy people. In Jeremiah 4.28, the Lord said, Because I have spoken it, I have purposed it, and will not repent, neither will I turn back from it. Ezekiel 14.6, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent and turn yourselves from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. Ezekiel 18.30, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions. 
so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Your ruin. Acts 26, verses 19 and 20. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to Galilee, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. So I don't know why we're making such a big deal out of that idea that when you repent, you're going to end up turning. That's what the Bible says. Repent and turn to God. When you get your mind in the right direction, it's going to cause you to turn. Peter here, he tells those that are pricked in their heart to repent. Okay, what is it they're supposed to change their thinking about? Or maybe a better way to put it is who are they supposed to change their thinking about? About the man Peter just preached, Jesus of Nazareth. Don't think of Jesus any longer as seditious. Don't think of him any longer as a fraud. Don't think of him as somebody who just was coming to stir up trouble. But think of him as the Christ, the Messiah. Think of him as God in the flesh who came to die for your sins. Because listen, it's what you think about Christ that will determine your eternal destination. Now this verse is also controversial because of the role of baptism. Is Peter saying baptism is required for salvation? Repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So why do we as, as Baptists nonetheless, you know, why are we who are big on baptism, why are we making the claim that baptism can't save you when this verse sounds like baptism is necessary to complete salvation? Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Clearly the Bible... It doesn't contradict itself. If we start with that, then we're in a good starting point. And if we understand that Jesus could look at the thief on the cross and say, today thou shalt be with me in paradise, understanding that the thief did never join a church, never was baptized, never did a good work in the sense that we would think about working for the Lord, if he could still be taken to paradise and not be baptized, clearly baptism is not necessary to be saved and go to heaven. So we know that. In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch will say to Philip, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? And in a verse that unfortunately has been removed out of most modern versions, in Acts 8.37, in fact, if you have a modern version tonight, you're on the fence about this issue, your Bible probably goes Acts 8.36.38. There's not even a number 37. The verse is completely missing. And so in verse 37... Philip says this, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And the, speaking of the Ethiopian eunuch, and he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Philip was clear, there was to be no baptism until there was a profession of faith. Until he could say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, there was no baptism. And this is taught throughout the Scriptures. Mark 16, 16, it sounds an awful lot like this verse. causes some controversy. Uh, it sounds like baptism's necessary for salvation, but if you'll slow down and read that verse, it actually disproves it. And so it reads this way, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. So when we hear that, we're 
kind of thinking, well, it sounds like you've got to be baptized in order to be saved. But slow down. Did you catch what it said? It doesn't say, he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. But it just says, if you don't believe, you're going to be damned. The implication is clear. Baptism is not what saves. It's the belief. John the Baptist, he was baptizing converts one day there in the River Jordan. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to see what was going on. And one of the accounts, I think it's Luke, it mentions they wanted to be baptized. John looked at him and he said, you need to bring forth fruits, meat for repentance first. What was he saying? You, you have nothing in your life that shows me you're born again. Why am I going to baptize you? And then he goes on to be real polite and call him a generation of vipers and all that kind of stuff. He was a Baptist. Amen. John was simply saying this, i got to know you're saved first. How about Acts twenty two sixteen, where Ananias says to Saul after his conversion, And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Well, was it the baptismal waters that would wash away the sins or was it the calling on the name of the Lord that would wash away the sins? Well, compare Scripture with Scripture. Romans 10.10 10. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So there's no mention of baptism there and I can keep giving you verses like this but what do we make of Acts 2.38? Here's how I think we're supposed to make sense of this verse for what it's worth. The word for, F-O-R, can be used interchangeably with the word because. And it changes nothing grammatically when you do that. I was freezing last week for the wind chill was minus 30. I was freezing last week because the wind chill was minus 30. Thank God it's going to be in the 50s this week, amen. That's why I love South Dakota. All right. Not the cold week, the warm weeks. So with that in mind, if you read this verse again, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for, or we could say, because of the remission of your sins. You need to be baptized because your sins have been remitted. I believe that's how we're to understand this. Uh, repent, meaning profess Jesus is the Christ, and since you have repented, then be baptized for or because your sins have been washed. So, in, in being saved, he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All who are in Christ are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. I just want to be clear because I think I kind of, I might have said things a little bit weird there earlier on. I believe the child of God gets all of the Holy Spirit they need when they're born again. I don't want to imply that somehow we have to have this experience where we get more of the Holy Spirit. And I've said this before, I just want to say it again in case I confused any, but we can grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And so we need to be filled with the Spirit. So I, I hope I didn't confuse anybody there. Because there is some squirrely doctrine out there that's teaching you don't get all of the Spirit when you're born again. Anyway, uh, so why all this emphasis on baptism if it doesn't save anyone? We emphasize it because we are commanded to baptize believers. It's that simple. It's one of the two ordinances given to the church. We are to baptize. Jesus said, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And Jesus was even baptized. That's a pretty good indication we ought to be baptized. I mean, if our Lord and Savior did it, who was perfect, we ought to do it as well. It, it's very important according to God. 
baptism is the first command to be obeyed after you're saved. If you can say tonight that you're in Christ, but you have never been baptized by immersion, then you need to get that right. And you need to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. That's where all of you should say amen and back me up. I can't explain it, but those who put off being baptized never seem to go far in their walk with God. I've had people that I've baptized here, and they've told me afterwards something was different with them. I, I don't understand all that. I just know that it's a step of obedience. And I know this, God cannot bless disobedience. Albert Barnes wrote this, If men are unwilling to profess religion, they have none. If they will not in the proper way show that they are truly attached to Christ, it is proof that they have no such attachment. 1 Peter 3.21 says, The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. And then he writes this in parentheses, Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What's Peter saying? It's a like figure of what is true. It's a like figure of what... Baptism is a like figure of what truly saves us. Baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and that's what saves us, the gospel. Romans 6, 3-5, through 5, Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into His death? Therefore, we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. You see, baptism is symbolic of what has taken place in the heart. Man cannot look upon your heart. So God has designed a system that says, here's what I'm saying I believe in my heart. I'm getting baptized to show everybody that I identify with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And baptism also identifies us with the doctrines of Christ. We do not use the term Baptist in our church name to identify with a denomination. We are an independent Baptist church. We use the term Baptist to identify with Bible doctrine. That we believe in the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke 7 and verse 30, But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, listen, being not baptized of Him. What are we being told there? Them not being baptized, they were sending the message to everyone else, we're not aligning with the counsel of God. We don't agree with your message. Therefore, we're not getting baptized. Obviously, I see it more now as a pastor. When you baptize somebody who's coming out of the Catholic Church, it is a big deal. Families shun those that get baptized as an adult. It's crazy. It is such an important thing is what I'm trying to emphasize, baptism. It is us, when, when we take that plunge, no pun intended, when, when we take that plunge, what we are saying is, I identify with Christ. I believe what His Word says about Christ. We are making a public profession that I now align with the counsels of God. 
And for this reason, we ask a potential new member, have you been baptized in a like-minded church? Meaning, were you identifying with Bible doctrine when you were baptized as we understand it? If not, that person needs to be baptized in our church. To say that, they are identifying with the counsels of God. I really like what Dr. Ouellette says, and he said it when he was here. If you're baptized by a Catholic, then that makes you a Catholic. If you're baptized by a Methodist, that makes you a Methodist. If you're baptized by a Baptist, that makes you a Baptist. And Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. Sweet. And, and, and the point is, the doctrine you were baptized in is what you are identifying with. Uh, these were being told to be baptized because if they were serious, they needed to identify with Christ and His doctrine. And for the record, to be baptized means to be immersed, uh, to be submerged. So it's an oxymoron to say sprinkle baptism. It's actually an impossibility. It's impossible to say pour, pouring baptism. A baptism, by definition, according to the Bible, is being fully immersed. Why? Because when Jesus was buried, they didn't just bury his feet. Or maybe sprinkle his head with dirt or whatever. He went all the way in the grave. <laughs> and he came all the way back out. And so that's what we're picturing when we plunge somebody under. And we always say something you know, like we do here, uh, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection, or something to that effect. Because we're just trying to say that we, we're identifying with Christ. And so we believe you have to go all the way under. That's what the word means. If you've not been baptized that way, I encourage you to come talk to me. Now, I have to wrap this up, but let me ask you. Have you followed the Lord in believer's baptism? Not were you baptized as an infant. Not were you baptized like I was. I was baptized at the age of 12, and I never was saved. My sister, my little sister was getting baptized and somebody said, do you want to get baptized? I went, yeah. I love to swim. <laughs> by the grace of God, that was in February. Um, by the grace of God in June, I got saved. And so I'm, not, I'm just asking, have you done things right? Have you got all this in order? Because if you haven't, you really need to swallow your pride. And that was hard for me because I remember, well, now I'm going to look foolish. I just was baptized, and now I'm saying I'm saved. And, and we let Satan work on our mind. We think, well, everybody's going to think I'm, I'm just a fake. And uh, Listen, if they're, if they're right with God, they're going to rejoice Amen. that you're doing things the Bible way. And so have you been baptized properly? Have you been baptized after your profession of faith? Um, if not, I say this as kindly as I can but you are living in disobedience to God. It's God's command to be baptized after you're saved. So swallow your pride or get over your fear and get dunked. When I close the curtain, we've had some pretty uh, tense moments because there are some people that have some legitimate fears of going under. I had one person, I thought for sure they were about to have a seizure. It was crazy. Y'all didn't see it, amen. And I'm sitting there going, oh, Lord. <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't know what to do at that point, amen. I'm just like, Lord, please. Uh, 
I shouldn't make fun, I'm sorry. We need to get things right. We need to put them in order. Amen? So if you're in one of those groups, please come and talk to me. If you've never been saved, come talk to me. If you've been saved and never been baptized, would you please come and just talk to me? I don't want you to miss out on God's blessing by continuing to live in disobedience. Let's pray.